0: Good morning. Good morning. morning. Um, It is good to be back. Um, Yeah, I was supposed to be here two weeks ago, and we just got leveled. It's going through our community over at Westminster, so that's fun. But my family, we're doing well again. Um, So glad to be here on, I guess, the last or second to last Sunday of Jeff's sabbatical. I know y'all are ready for him to be back. Um, Let me pray for us, and then we will turn to Psalm... One hundred thirty-seven. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, as we prepare to open Your Word to a particularly difficult text, but a particularly um, famous one, I-, I pray for help. I need help. We need help understanding what the psalmist is trying to communicate uh, through Your Word in this song. So I pray for humility, and I pray for 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 hope, for eyes that are tuned to Christ and for hearts that are that are attentive to his words as we listen to what he says in Psalm 137. Pray this in his name. Amen. All right. I um I am by no means a civil war buff or a historian. Happen to be really good family friends with someone who is legitimately a historian and one of his personal hobbies is the Civil War and Three and a half years ago, or almost four years ago now, when we told him that we were moving to Macon, Georgia, to uh, be an assistant pastor at the first church we were at, he got really excited because he loves Macon, Georgia, um, and he knows a lot of Civil War history about Macon, Georgia, so we got to hear about it from him. If you have a friend that's a Civil War buff, I'm sure you can identify with with that conversation, but the city of Macon is a very old city, and it's right smack in the middle of the state of Georgia. You see it on a map, it's literally... the the center point is very old, and as an old city, it has, of course, the historic downtown, it has the First Presbyterian Church, and it has several other historic churches. Um, And interestingly, in that presbytery, when you go through ordination, you go to First Presbyterian Church in Macon, the oldest church in the presbytery, um, and they put you in a room. And if you've been to a historic church, I'm sure you know what this room is. It's the room where all of the pastors that have ever pastored at the church are just lining the wall. And at a church that's over 200 years old, it's a lot of pastors. Uh, and that's the room they put you in to do your ordination exams. Um, but interestingly, and this is the story that I was told, the, on that wall from 1860 to 1870 was a man was the pastor, a man named Reverend David Wills. And so during the Civil War, a very famous event, um, where the Union Army and General Sherman marched from Atlanta through the heart of Georgia, which is Macon, all the way to Savannah. On the way to Savannah, he captured the city of Macon. When he captured the city of Macon, he gathered all of the people, it wasn't a particularly big city, but it was an important city. Uh, He gathered all of the people and put them in the downtown square. And then he gathered all of the clergy, and he brought them next to the people and the Union officer looked at the clergy and said, Which of you will now stand and preach the sermon of your liberation? And so all the clergy were standing there, and it was Reverend David Wills who stood up, opened his Bible, and read Psalm 137. The story is on a placard outside of the church, it's a very famous story. But this is what he read. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept, when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall be he who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Alright, so Psalm 23 uh, is undoubtedly the most famous psalm, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, that psalm, but I would wager that Psalm 137 is not far behind it, though for very, very different reasons. You know, the words of this psalm, at least the opening words, find their way into all sorts of cultural references. There are are many songs written about it, very famous um, Rastafarian renditions, Bob Marley has a very famous uh, rendition of this psalm by the rivers of Babylon. the title comes up in several books, I think it's even been some movies with the name of it. It's part of a, a group of psalms um, that became like an anthem for the downtrodden, an anthem for those in exile. And, and this particular psalm is part of a group of psalms called imprecatory psalms, or psalms that curse. I'm sure you tuned in to those last couple of verses, they sound out of place. For a psalm, but when we think of the psalms, um, what do we tend to think of? We think of um, things that give us a positive inclination. They lift our spirits. When we're sad, we go to the psalms. They give us words to worship our great God. They give us hope. They give us comfort. They give us images of, of a shepherd, and of a fortress, and of a savior. But there is a non insignificant number of psalms like Psalm 137. Depending on how we calculate it, or how, how you count them, 10% of the Psalter are Psalms that curse. So that's roughly 15 of the 150 Psalms are Psalms like 137, which is clearly the most famous, but several of them, like Psalm 3, <coughs> quoted in the New Testament. Peter takes one and applies it to Judas early in the book of Acts. Jesus even alludes to one as well. So we need to understand these Psalms. We tend to skip these Psalms. Because they're, they're hard, they feel a little out of place. We're not quite sure what to do with them. Um, but I, I borrowed a book from another one of our assistant pastors. He's been here, uh, Pastor Insley, our youth pastor. And the book is so helpfully titled. It's about these songs, and the book is titled, War Songs of the Prince of Peace. And as we work through Psalm 137 today, I want to look at three things. The context of Psalm 137 the curses that, that famous part at the end of psalm 137 and then finally the concern so the context the curses and then the concern of psalm 137 so the context now unlike most psalms psalm 137 is extremely easy to place historically most of them are a little ambiguous they could apply to lots of different things just because of the nature of the psalm psalm 137 is not like that we know exactly when it was written, and why it was written. It's a reflection of the pain of the return from Babylon, from the great exile that Israel went through. And you can read about that in more detail at the very end of the book of 2 Kings. But you have this long section of history in the Old Testament from Joshua, so entering the Promised Land, Judges, sort of the anarchy of the Promised Land, uh, and then you go into 1 and 2 Samuel and 1st and 2 Kings. Um, and that tells the story, or, or really the history, of the nation of Israel, and it along the way well documents their sin. They were a covenant people. They were a people born and created under a covenant, and they repeatedly broke that covenant. They were fickle, they worshipped other gods. There's famous sections of, of Baal worship. Just for one example, they were faithless. They regularly sought political and military alliances with other nations, with Assyria, or even with Babylon, or with Egypt, all of these places. They were immoral. They did, and they allowed absolutely detestable things to happen in their cities and in their places of worship. You see um, in Judges, especially at the end of Judges, just heinous acts. Later on, you see... um, sort of pagan cult worship that has crept into even the temple practices. Um, And if you read many of the early prophets, kind of in that big section of the Old Testament with the prophets, those prophets are basically lawyers. They're, They're covenant lawyers, and they're coming to Israel over and over again, and they are telling them in explicit detail the things that Israel has done to violate the covenant, and in explicit detail what's going to happen to them if they don't repent. And while there are a few moments of repentance, especially as you read through the kings, there's a couple good kings along the way. Um, Overall, the trajectory is down. Down, 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 down. And as a final judgment for their sin, Babylon comes from the north. This is King Nebuchadnezzar, famous city of Babylon, uh, great power of Babylon, comes from the north to eradicate Israel. They lay a devastating and brutal siege on the city of Jerusalem. They decimate the armies, they execute the king's children, they level the walls, they burn the city, they loot the temple, and they carry the people into exile. But not all of them. The elderly, or the crippled, or those that probably couldn't make the hundreds of mile brutal march back to Babylon, they just get left in a broken and burned city with absolutely no defense. And one of the more valuable subsets of people um, to Babylon would have been young women, young people in general, but especially young women. But those young women that would have happened to have nursing infants with them would have been a liability on the journey back. So the simplest way to ensure you get what you want and you remove the liability is to dispose Of the nursing infants. Jerusalem being a city on a mountain with rocky crags, it was very easy to dispose of their nursing infants while their mothers were marched back. And they spent their years in exile on the plains of Babylon by the great rivers, the Tigris, the Euphrates, this massive, lush. A floodplain, digging the canal systems, digging the river systems, digging the irrigation systems that water the powerful nation of Babylon, which was their prison. And while they work, their overseers and their slave drivers, they see their musical instruments that they would have made for themselves and they say mockingly, Sing us the songs of Zion. Sing us the songs of your God. What they mean by that are, are the other songs. Psalm 23, for example. Psalm 121, for example. Those uplifting and comforting songs, um, the one where where Yahweh watches over his people, where Yahweh is an unbreakable fortress, where Yahweh is a shepherd who cares for his people and will protect them. Yeah, Yeah, sing those songs to us. And the implication for the Babylonian overseers is that while the Jews sing those songs, they, the Babylonians, they get to revel in the fact that their gods, especially Marduk, their most powerful god, they actually reign supreme. Because Yahweh failed. And the worship, or the would-be worship of the people of God becomes this almost twisted celebration of pagan deities. But there's actually a sense where things get worse. The the initial brutality of of it all fades after just a couple of years, relatively quickly, in the, the full span of the exile. And then the Israelites are welcomed into society. They start to rise through the ranks. They become somewhat prosperous at times. Daniel's a really famous example of this, um, but there were others. Uh, the floodplains of Babylon are far, far more productive than their homeland of Israel. And they are ingrafted, in a sense, into a mighty, mighty nation, to a superpower at the time. So will they forget Zion? Will they set Babylon higher than the city of God? So the exile they experience is twofold. It starts off as a brutal punishment for their sin and for their covenant violation. But then it becomes getting exactly what they want. To be like the other nations. That's the refrain in Judges in the beginning of 1 Samuel. We want to be like the other nations. Well, now they have the chance. And it's a sobering and frightening connection to what sin is and our own choices and the consequences from it. Alright, so that's the context of Psalm 137. That's what happened before and during. Um, But this psalm was written after the exile. So they do come back. There's good news. They do come back. The stories of Ezra and Nehemiah talk about that. Uh, Later prophets talk about that. And we'll talk in more detail about the implications of the middle section of the psalm. Um, we talked about hanging up the liars and, and the, the curses on their cells. Before we do that, since we laid out the context, let's now look at the curses because that's the most famous part uh, certainly everybody's questions. So, laid out the context, let's read again the last three verses of the psalm, the famous curses of Psalm 137. I'm going to start in verse 7. <coughs> Remember, O Lord, Against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. It's hard to read isn't it? We're not used to reading sections like that in the scriptures. And, and Derek Kidner, he's a very famous commentator on the Psalms. He, he describes this as just a raw wound thrust in front of you that you have to look at. For our sake, for, the, for what we're doing right now, I think this is actually a fairly easy part of the sermon. Um, and all I mean by that is we with a little bit of study, we see exactly what the psalmist is doing, and it's not particularly complicated. All the psalmist is doing here is remembering the horrible things that the people of God experienced, and he is praying that the God of the universe, the just judge, not only will he do what is right, but, and this is the key, but that he will do what he has already promised to do. That part, I think, is the key to making this make so much more sense. The psalmist is asking God to do two things. One against Edom, and one against Babylon. And each of those things, God has already said he will do in other earlier parts of the Old Testament. So Edom, if you remember... Uh, rival nation to Israel from Esau. Many, many years ago you had Jacob and Esau. Esau became the father of Edom. Um, Edom helped the Babylonians when it was all said and done, when they conquered Israel. They they made a mockery of what was happening to the city of Jerusalem. They actually had their own war bands that circled the city and they would gather up Jews trying to escape. Um, They they made a hole in the wall. The Jews were trying to get out. Edom gathered them up and delivered them to the Babylonian commander. And that's just the recent stuff. They have a long history of antagonizing the people of God, and there's actually an entire book of the Old Testament that is written about Edom, that the psalmist is referencing and quoting from when he says this in Psalm 137. It's the book of Obadiah. So it's one of those really obscure ones. It's, the, the one, it's a one-chapter minor prophet book. Uh, it's short, but it chronicles the things that Edom has done, and it chronicles or it prepares for the judgment of God against Edom. There's also more in in certain sections of Isaiah, particularly chapter 34, sections of Jeremiah, particularly chapter 49, that have already been written well before Psalm 137 to explain what's coming for Edom if they don't repent. So the psalmist is simply praying, remember God what you have already said you would do. In enacting justice. So just as an example, here's an excerpt from Obadiah. There's no chapter, so starting in verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates, and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. All of these things they did. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. The psalmist in 137 is simply praying, Remember God. What you have already said you would do, from the prophet Obadiah. And the exact same thing is true of the next part of Babylon, of the, the, the very infamous curses against Babylon. Listen to the words from Isaiah chapter 13 that were written almost 150 years before Psalm 137. This is against Babylon. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Very similar language is found in Isaiah 47, Jeremiah 50 and 51. So these are not curses of personal vengeance. Even though it is extremely likely the writer of, of Psalm 137 was born in Babylon, was born in exile and heard stories from his parents about what happened. These are faithful cries that the judge of the universe would judge justly. And the language that's used, that Hebrew word for remember, it is a legal term. It's a courtroom term. It's what someone would say in a defense before the king or before a judge. These are cries for justice based on the promises that God has already made. That he will be just. He will remember his people. Even though they were being judged for their sin, the actions of those that mocked them and that destroyed them will be judged. And while it's not as pointed, we literally did the exact same thing what, 15 minutes ago. When we pray the Lord's Prayer every single Sunday, you know, the language isn't quite as strong, but what do we say? You know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if we kind of think about what that means, that the coming of the kingdom of God necessarily implies the destruction of the kingdom of Satan. And the scriptures make it abundantly clear that the will of God is to punish and judge sin. And of course, in our cultural moment, and we can absolutely uh, count our blessings, the words and the curses at the end of Psalm 137, they are hard to read. And they feel alien, they feel foreign. But even today, in 2023, if we zoom out and think about our brothers and sisters around the world, the words and curses of Psalm 137 hit a lot closer to home. Um, at Westminster, we have a, a, during the school year, we have a Wednesday night prayer meeting. And our associate pastor, Jim Roberts, is always very faithful to include prayers from missionaries and churches around the world. And when you read the things from, you know, parts of China, or parts of North Africa, or parts of Indonesia, and you read just horrible, horrible things, and, and we pray for them weekly. Um, these words that feel so foreign to us, they hit a lot closer to home. And how could we not intercede on our brothers and sisters' behalf that God will remember? But if we zoom out a little bit, the psalm, has a lot to say to us as well. Um, And now that we've more or less laid out the context, and we kind of understand the curses and what's happening there, um, let's turn to the final point, the concern of Psalm 137. There's at least three things that I want to say here about the concern of Psalm 137. The first is the heart of the exile. So let's look at the first four verses. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept, when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? I think there's a, there's at least a portion of every believer that understands the concept of exile even if it's not as graphic as the babylonian exile was that that feeling or that experience that that we just don't belong here and that can manifest itself in a thousand different ways i mean it could be your family maybe you're the only believer in your family uh, that's not true of me but i've had friends that that's true of and you just feel so alone, so out of place. Could be your workplace. Uh, before I was in ministry, I was a high school teacher for five years in the public school system um, in Georgia. And I distinctly remember, it really wasn't that long ago, but I mean, I remember there was one person, at least on my wing, that was a Christian, talking about staff, and that viewed the world the way I do. But other than that, just this feeling of being in a, in a bog or in a mire and just having to. Endure and listen to these, this just horrible things, this depravity. Uh, just and it could be your own present circumstances. It could be the sin in your life that you hate, but it still feels like it just has so much power over you, and you just feel in exile. And the, the glimpse this psalm gives us into the heart of the exile is that it is brutally honest. There are no platitudes in Psalm one thirty-seven. It's not a Hallmark card psalm. The psalm doesn't suppress pain and make it just seem like things are going to be okay. Now, it's actually a really important theme of the exile at large. If you read about it in other sections of the Old Testament, there were numerous false prophets that came to the people while they were in exile and said, don't get comfortable here. You're only going to be in exile for a year or two. Things are going to be fine. Yahweh is about to, just any day now, break the Babylonians and we're going home. And that they were tickling their ears, telling the people what they wanted to hear. But that wasn't the case. They were in exile for two full generations. Those that went into exile died in exile. The Psalm, Psalm 137 doesn't make everything sound okay. It uncovers the wound. It lets the air hit it. The heart of the exile looks up to heaven and asks the question, How can I sing of Yahweh always protecting me? How can I sing of Jerusalem being a fortress on a hill? How can I sing of Israel's kingdom spanning from sea to sea, the famous Psalm 72, Um, of Yahweh breaking the weapons of the enemy? How can I sing these things when they're not true? One commentator said, the problem lies not merely in what the captors are saying, but in what the captives' own hearts are saying. To sing such songs might be an act of faith, but in the context, it would feel more like an act of folly. It's the reality that sometimes faith and hope are silent. They're not gone, but they're silent. It's like, if you you can identify with this, with someone you care about has gone through just an unspeakably difficult situation. And the best thing that you can do is just sit next to them and not say anything. Just sit with them. And I say that because of the first two verses. So look, look at what the psalm says. On the willows, which are trees, on the willows there we hung up our lyres. And that is a very important verse. They didn't break them. They didn't chop them up and turn them into firewood. They didn't throw them into the rivers in anger. They didn't repurpose them. They hung them up. They hung them up. It's not said, but they hung them up in hope or in the chance, maybe, that during their life, they would have a reason to take them back down or to give them to their children. That one day, those instruments would play the songs of Zion the heart of the exile is honest and at least silently hopeful, even when their exile is the result of their own sin. Second concern of Psalm 137 is the centrality of worship for the exile. This is verses 5 and 6. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, Let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. These are two verses, and they are a self-maledictory oath, a curse on his self, um, that even though the lips of the exile may be silent, inside their heart aches for Zion. Where words fail them, affections do not. To use language from the prophet Ezekiel, their hearts are not made of stone. They're made of flesh, and they don't belong here. This is particularly true for the second problem of the exile that we mentioned earlier. Remember, it started off brutal. The siege, the march, and the first year or two were brutal and barbaric. But after a couple of years, it became real pleasant in Babylon. This was a wealthy prosperous place. And the temptation to integrate, to give up Zion, would have been very real. In fact, we know this is true because later historical accounts in the Old Testament tell us that there were people who chose to stay in Babylon when it was time to go home. But the exile understands the centrality of Zion, understands that this world is not my home. And despite the allure of this world, they will not buy it. They would rather curse themselves than set anything above Zion. It's a really similar thought to what Jesus says in the New Testament about plucking out your eye or cutting off your hand. These self-maledictory oaths. The exile teaches us the very humbling lesson of sin and judgment that often we don't realize how precious something is until we lose it. Um, On Wednesday nights, so I'm like the young adult pastor. So not, not uh, high school, but like college and young married. That's what I do most of the time. And on Wednesday nights, I have a college and career uh, Bible study. And we're finishing up Hosea. We'll actually finish it this week. I think Pastor Jeff preached to Hosea recently. So maybe this will sound really familiar. Um, this idea is reflected in chapter 13 in Hosea. Um, it was I, that's the Lord speaking, who knew you in the wilderness in the land of drought, but when they, that's Israel, when they had grazed, so in the wilderness, in the land of drought, when Israel had grazed, they became full, they were filled, their hearts were lifted up, and therefore they forgot me. The people became content with the gift, and they took their eyes off of the one giving it the one who gives everything. And Hosea goes on in the next verse to say that because of that, the Lord will now rip it from them. He uses graphic language of a lion ripping something. And this is literally in reference to the northern kingdom and Assyria, but the southern kingdom, which is what we're talking about now in Babylon, are not that far behind them. And in their prosperity and in their affluence, they neglected the Lord. But now in their desperation... And in the often unseen blessings that exile brings, they cling to him in a wordless faith. Finally, the third concern of Psalm 137, the third concern, is the longing for justice. We've already read the curses, so I'm not going to read them for a third time, but this is judicial language. This is not the language of pettiness, it's not the language of human vengeance. We've already seen that these are promises that God himself has already made through his prophets to do right, to act justly, to remember his people. And so now, those in exile are clinging to those promises. Now, I don't think it's very hard to see how this applies to our own lives. that Those moments where you just long for evil to be removed, for the name of your God to be revered the way it should, I mean, one partic- I'm sure everyone has at least a story, one particular memory I have of a group of people just openly mocking God. It was in college, so I um, have a biology degree from a state school, so I taught biology for five years as I was going through seminary. And so we had a senior seminar on evolution, so you kind of required senior seminar, it's pretty normal in undergrad. Um, and interestingly, one of those professors was actually a Christian but he never said anything in public. I just ran into him at a church one time. Um, But the other professor was very not. Um, And I just remember for a whole semester, you're required, you're literally locked in this room if you want to graduate and do these projects, and just having to endure mockery. Um, I'm sure you know how it is. When the professor's this way, it kind of emboldens everybody and you just have to sit there and maybe there's something that could have been done, but I was trying to... I was literally it, and I was leaving that school, so I was trying to leave. Just the mockery of it all, and just how sad it was. My, my life, you know, church on Sunday, church on Wednesday, I'm in a, not RUF, but a college ministry. I'm leading a small group, but my whole life revolves around this. And then every, like, Wednesday, mid-afternoon, I have to just sit through two hours of just open mockery. Um, just very sad, that feeling. Um, another, that is even worse, is just seeing the, the utter depravity and the evil of our world and the fallen man, and I'll make this without being graphic at all, but uh, my daughter, who's back there with our two little boys in the nursery, she's five, so she starts kindergarten in like ten days. It's going to be her first kid in school, and try not to think about it too much. Mm-hmm. Um, her name's Eleanor. And so she's going to be at WCA, so if you're familiar, I'm a pastor at Westminster, well, Westminster Christian Academy. They started a school at some point. <laughs> hadn't been here that long. Um, and so she's going to be at our school, at our Christian Covenant school that bears our name. Um, but I've actually been taking her since February to see the speech therapist that's on site, and so I've been driving there every week. And this is our Christian Covenant school with our name. And when I take her there in the middle of the afternoon to see the speech therapist, you know the first thing I see when I pull into that school? is a police SUV. And the first person I see when you open that door is an armed police officer with a visible bulletproof vest. And that's not the way things are supposed to be. And when these things happen, I know you know what I'm talking about, in our hearts we say that prayer, just... Lord, come quickly. We don't know what to pray, so that's what you have. Lord, come quickly. We are functionally praying the words to Psalm 137. Ultimately, those two prayers are the exact same thing. And what I mean more technically is that the reference to the infants of Babylon being dashed is not meant to be taken literally. And I'll say why in a second, but Babylon becomes this trans-historical symbol. That was our New Testament reading. Um, Synonymous with all the enemies of the world. You see it in Daniel, but you really see it in Revelation. A city where evil arrays itself against its creator. And the reference to infants of Babylon, infants of the city, would more accurately be understood as cutting off the lineage of evil. So it's not real babies in real history. And we know that for a fact because the conquest of Babylon which Isaiah talked about, um, and then we see it in real history, by the Persians, was very quiet. It was not barbaric. There were one or two battles on the plains of Babylon, and then the Persians just walked into the city. There was no siege. There was no brutality. There was no ravishing or killing infants or any of that. The Persians just walked in and over, you 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 see it kind of happen in Daniel, just this overnight flip. No siege, no slaughter. There were no heinous war crimes. So this infamous curse in Psalm 137 is pointing to something greater. It's pointing to something beyond what Israel experienced. There will be a day where the root of evil is utterly severed. Where its propagation ends. Its judgment is final. And that cry will go out. It starts in Isaiah with the horsemen riding in and bringing news from the north. Fallen. Fallen is Babylon. But it's picked up again. This was our New Testament reading in Revelation 18. Fallen. Fallen is Babylon the great. She who had become a dwelling place of demons and a haunt for everything unclean, and then those words, come out of her, my people. But if we think about it, that does lead to a bit of a problem, if we're being honest. What is the way out of her? How can anyone, if we really stop and think for a second, and this is the last thing, how can anyone really pray for justice or divine vengeance? Who could pray that prayer and then withstand what is to come? summarize a much, much larger point from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, to to long for divine justice means surrendering all of my own claims because only people who have not sinned can leave vengeance in God's hands. And so in the end, the judgment of God will fall on two things, and only two things. Babylon, the the summation of the world and of evil arrayed against its creator and God's own son, Jesus, the the great cleft in the rock as the glory and the wrath of God passes by. I think that's ultimately where we need to leave Psalm 137. It's raw. It's a prayer of pain and of heartache. Remember, Kidner said it was this open wound we have to deal with. It longs for the God of the universe to make things right. The curses of the Psalms are not weapons to be wielded in our hands for vengeance. They are reminders that the God of this world will do right and inevitably bring total justice. But the good news, David Kittner concludes in his commentary, between our day and theirs, our calling and theirs, Stands the cross. And we are ministers of reconciliation. And this is a day of good tidings. There is a shelter in the storm. There is a banner lifted high for the exile to cling to. And the words, come out of her, my people. And I'll add, take your liars off the willows as you pass by. Because you will need them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the words of Psalm 137. They're, it's a difficult psalm. We have to come face to face with the reality of sin in this world, the reality that we are sinners. And Lord, even as, as foreigners in a strange land where our hearts long for something else, where they long for heaven, we have to, to, to understand and deal with the fact that we are utterly undeserving. And that judgment against sin means judgment against us. And so, Lord, I pray that the realities of the cross will be impressed upon us this morning. That as it stands high, we can hide under it. And we can hide under the mercy and the death of your Son, who withstood judgment in our place. Lord, we pray this in His name, in His name alone.